Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Science intersects with the arts today. Imagine playing a newly invented instrument. Each year, Georgia Tech invites inventors from around the world to share their creations and ideas about the future of music. Later this hour, the chair of Georgia Tech School of Music, Professor Jason Freeman, joins City Light senior producer Kim Drobes to discuss the Guthman Musical Instrument Competition, part of the Atlanta Science Festival. First, science collides with comedy. When you picture Albert Einstein, is he smiling? Jazz Hands is presented by Science for Georgia. Executive Director Dr. Amy Sharma joins me now via Zoom, along with Dr. Mesa Salaita, the Executive Co-Director and Co-Founder of Science ATL. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is great. Mesa Last year's Atlanta Science Festival spotlighted women's voices. What's this year's theme? You know, I think this is our step back into normal life. Um, (laughs) We've got a huge focus on outdoor events. We're so excited to be in a greater presence than we were last year. And I think we wanted to keep things as safe as possible. And with that, we really focused on the outdoor events and trying to do as much as we can outside. And so we are super excited to have, I think about 60, 65% of our events are outdoors and looking at the natural world. My goodness. Indeed, this is the first time that ASF, the Atlanta Science Festival, will be back in person. Can you just Give us a few highlights of the outdoor COVID safe events you're offering. Yeah, absolutely. So we are working with partners all over the city and have come up with some really fabulous events. One I had, it was my one of my very last events in 2020 before everything fell apart was called ID the Trees, which is a fabulous walk in Mason Mill Park, uh, learning about what the trees are around us. We've got an event that has been really popular. People have been really excited to sign up for it. We have it both in a virtual form and an outdoor in-person form called Carol on Cumberland, a natural history that's uh, talking all about Cumberland Island, a place I have not been, but I now very much want to go. And then of course we have all sorts of events that we might normally have had indoors that we've moved to the outdoors. So an event that I am excited about is one that is looking at uh, Mother Nature, playing Mother Nature, modeling extreme weather phenomenon uh, mm. and or Earth phenomenon. Uh, just looking at the Earth science and some of the crazy things our planet does. And I think it, it'll be a lot of fun. So that'll be in Brownwood Park. Amy, you are the executive director of Science for Georgia. What does the organization provide for the public. How do you liaise with scientists and the public? 
So we're a, a relatively new organization and we started a couple of years ago. Our whole premise is making sure that science is out there serving society. And so the ways that, that we liaise with the public kind of fall under three pillars. Uh, the first one is we create science information, like easily digestible things like science notes or infographics or um, uh, small little vignettes about what science is and, and its application to everyday life. And so we, we really make sure that no matter what we're explaining, be it volcanoes or how to clean up the ocean, you know, we give people something very small that they can do to experience that science and apply it in a good way. So I always use coastal conservation, right? Coastal conservation is a very important thing for all of us, but um, it also seems really scary. And how, how can I, as a, just one individual, do anything good? And, and when you talk to experts, they're like, what we really need is people to fill in their holes when they leave the beach at the end of the day. And we really need them to use less plastic. And I'm like, that's a thing that everyone can do. And that is an evidence-based best practice. So we really try and provide those to the public so they, they can be involved and be utilizing science and doing something good. Um, so that's step one. And step two is we do a lot of these outreach programs. On a regular basis, we have Science Tales and Trails and Atlanta Science Tavern, which are ways that scientists can go out and interact with the community. So one is held um, in a park and you take a walk and we talk about everything from birds to eating insects to macrophages. And then uh, the other one's held in a bar. Um, and so at that same time, we also do these special events. So we're super excited to be partnering with the Atlanta Science Festival on jazz hands, right? So this is again, a way for scientists to get out there in the public talking about what it is that they do in a way that's much more accessible and makes science scientists look like humans. And <laughs> <laughs> right, like, you know, we're not just people out there in lab coats, right? Uh, you know, you, you definitely said that thing about Albert Einstein in the beginning. And it's just, you know, when you ask people to name a living scientist, most of the American public cannot. They usually respond to Albert Einstein and spoiler alert, he's been dead for a while. So yeah, he's yeah. not living. So we really need to make it that we are, we are not just randos in lab coats, just like saying things in, in dark rooms with no windows, right? We're out there. We're your neighbors. Um, we're the people at the coffee shop and, and we're really trying to do the right thing as well. I mean, there aren't many public scientists who speak to a general audience in that way. <laughs> right. And um, part of it is because uh, as scientists, we're scared of people, to be frank, right? Like we're always the introverts in the room most of the time. And then part of it is just for a long time, um, culturally in the scientific community, speaking with the, the general public was a thing that was frowned upon, right? Like you should only be speaking in large sentences, using big words to your colleagues and the general public should just listen to what we have to say and, and just take it as fact. And so what we're trying to do is, is make sure that people change their opinions, both inside the science world and outside the science world in terms of science is approachable and and as a scientist, it's, it's part of your responsibility as a member of the human race to be out there and talking to people about what it is that you do. Right. It need not be mutually <laughs> exclusive. You can be a great researcher and publish all sorts of academic articles, write books, and still befriend the public and speak to them about why it's important. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about jazz hands. <laughs> this grabbed me. You are one of the representatives for the event. How did jazz hands get started? I can't take all the credit for this or most of the credit, really. Uh, this is the brainchild of uh, Lou Leflin and Pete Ludovis. Um, they're both professors at Georgia Tech, and they do stand-up comedy on the side. So they take it very seriously. And there's a big body of research about how humor is a great way to reach out. But a few years ago, they started doing programs where they were like, well, we should train other scientists how to do this. So we've put together, it's a four-step program where we, we get about 10 people in a cohort and we take them all the way from being you know, just a scientist with a story they want to tell to someone who has 
a reasonably funny stand-up routine. And so we teach them about how to write a joke and, and what people think is funny and um, how to look <laughs> for <sounds> so remedial. <laughs> it sounds so remedial, but like, um, and it also, we help them find like, cause a lot of people are like, wow, I do, you know, intensive nuclear physics. How is that at all funny? And it's like, well, let's just start talking about your day. And I'm sure there's things in there that there's a lot of humor um, in that, and then if you're trying to make an analogy about what it is that you do, it can be a really funny analogy. Like most of the things that scientists do, the, when you start to make an analogy, to, it's like this turns out to be a reasonably good joke. So that's kind of where we take them through it. And we just want them to see the humor in what it is that they do. What can you tell us about your training. You underwent the training for Jazz Hands last year. Yes, I did. Um, I figured if we were going to offer this as a as an organization, I needed to be able to say that it was okay. So it was interesting, right? Because I started out and, uh, you know, obviously I care very deeply about science communication. And so we started to talk about all the pitfalls and parts of science communication. And at the, at the same time, I was working on them. Um, there's a lot of things going on in Southeast Georgia around animal waste, right? And so there's just like a plethora of poop jokes mm -hmm. out there and you just have to really embrace them. Embrace <laughs> and your poop. You, yes, that is exactly. So they taught me how to embrace poop jokes. Okay. <laughs> I interviewed... Um, Alan Alda a few years ago, and what a joy that was. At that time, he had written a book titled, If I Understood What You Were Saying, Would I Have This Expression on My Face? <laughs> and it was about, this book was about his work with scientists and physicians speaking to people in a way that they could understand, not only for clarity, but also with compassion and empathy. And perhaps you're aware of this, Mesa, you may be aware of this institute at Stony Brook University, one of the state universities of New York, that Alan Alda and another scientific researcher created in which they use improv as a tool for helping scientists and physicians relate better. Why is humor and how can improv be good tools for helping scientists to communicate better? That is awesome. What a great question. Um, so yes, I am aware of Alan Alda's work. I mean, he's doing great things for science communication. And then we we were just talking about this in class, right? The reason improv is is so good about this is that if you're doing improv right, you have to be a hundred percent focused on the moment. You can't be focused on what you're gonna say. 10 minutes from now or what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow or like you know the fact that someone cut you off in traffic right if you're going to be doing improv and you're going to be doing it correctly you have to be completely I get mindful of your surroundings and in the moment because the number one rule of improv is yes and right everyone on the stage there doing improv is there to lift each other up and no matter what your improv partner says you're supposed to agree with what they say and then add on to it. And so if you're a physician and you get that sort of training, then instead of thinking about the patient that you have down the hall or the fact that you're running a half hour late and all that stuff, if you've had improv training, again, your brain is then attuned to the fact that you're, you're talking to your patient right then and there. You're reading their emotions and making sure that you're in the moment with them. And so that'll really help you then to respond with what they have to say and think about it. And then, you know, humor is a, is a natural, I guess, defense mechanism, right? 
I totally laugh at funerals. I'm not sure if that's healthy or not, but I know a lot of people do. And like, because you're responding to something that's just so emotionally overwhelming that you're like, well, I'm just going to laugh about this because it's, it's, I need, I need to clean out whatever's going on in my brain and, and, and get that going. So it's, it's a way to, to get at like a basal need that you have and just respond there. Well, I also think comedy is an art form, a high form of art. Mesa, you've been great about including arts-related science events. How do science and the arts complement one another? You know, it was actually a conversation with you last year that sparked one of the events that we created for the festival this year, which was really. Uh, yeah, actually, it's um, called uh, Conversations in Creativity. And when you asked me something similarly phrased last year, it struck me as this uh, moment when I, I kind of realized that creativity, obviously, we everybody recognize that it guides the arts, but it also really, really guides scientists in what they do. You have to be creative in order to solve the unknown problems and the known problems that we have. And without that creativity, scientific experiments don't go anywhere. And so I think that idea of creative problem solving and just creativity in general is a huge link that brings them together. And this event is, is going to feature a scientist and mathematician from Georgia Tech, as well as an artist doing some large-scale work on water. It's Amy Landsberg, the artist. She's she's got some work at the airport, kind of all over the place. She's she's pretty impressive. Oh, that's wonderful. and actually somebody from WAB uh, will be moderating their conversation all about creativity. Who among my colleagues will moderate? It will be Emil. Moffat. Oh, Emil is wonderful. He's an outstanding reporter, and he has a tremendous love for the arts, so great choice. Now, after this month's festival ends, partner organizations of yours will offer STEM-related summer camps. We have many, many partners who are creating amazing science-based camps, and many of those uh, do incorporate the arts as well. And so uh, I think we've we've pushed out um, some advertisements for our friends who are doing these awesome camps, and, and hopefully some of these kiddos in the metro area will be able to participate. Mesa Salida, the executive co-director and co-founder of Science ATL. She was joined by Amy Sharma, executive director of Science for Georgia. This year's Atlanta Science Festival runs from March 12th through the 26th, and the Jazz Hands performance takes place on March 23rd. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll continue exploring the intersection of art and science and hear about a competition that invites inventors from around the world to share their musical instrument creations. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The Guffman Musical Instrument Competition and Concert is dedicated to identifying the newest and greatest ideas in music. Each year, Georgia Tech invites musical inventors from around the world to share their creations and ideas about the future of music. Professor and chair of Georgia Tech School of Music, Jason Freeman, recently joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes and began by explaining the history of the competition. So the competition has quite an interesting history. It actually began as a piano competition, and it was created by Richard Guthman, an alum of Georgia Tech, who really wanted to do something to pay tribute to his wife, Margaret, who is a wonderful pianist. And so they created this piano competition here at Georgia Tech, which we ran for many years, and it was a wonderful event. But as Georgia Tech and the School of Music here was really changing our approach to music, we were increasingly looking at ways to engage music and technology together. And there was a wonderful professor who was chair of the school here before me, Frank Clark, who had the inspiration to turn what had been this piano competition into a musical instrument competition. And with the idea of the musical instrument being at the center of the competition, we are able to bring in science and engineering and design and computing and all of these things kind of come together in this interdisciplinary mashup that really helps us see the visions of different creators from around the world, musicians and artists and entrepreneurs, as they're thinking about what the future of musical creativity is like and how technology can help us to get there. It is taking the term experimental music to a new level. And some of the creations that have come out of this are absolutely spectacular. Can you tell us a little bit about last year's winner? Yeah, so last year's winner... It looks like kind of a giant uh, wooden circle, about the size of a a small person, perhaps. Uh, You can put (laughs) it on your lap and play it while you're seated, or you can put it on a table and play it that way. And it has a, a bunch of very sensitive buttons on it and electromagnets and strings on the back. And so as you move your hands across these buttons, it actually activates these electromagnets that create acoustic sound coming out of the instrument. So even though there's all kinds of circuits and electronics and things that are embedded in it, the sound that comes out of it is ultimately this very physical acoustic kind of sound as a result of the the interaction with the instrument. And so playing it is a little bit kind of like playing a a keyboard or a synthesizer, a little bit like playing uh, an accordion, a little bit like playing a a video game almost in terms of the, the, the way that your fingers go across the surface. That is so cool. So before we get into this year's competitors, can you tell us a little bit about how the competition is set up? For example, what are the rules? So we have uh, an open call for submissions that goes out every fall. And anyone who, who wants to can submit their musical instrument and they submit a short video demonstrating it to us and explaining a little bit about it. And then a jury of faculty members here at Georgia Tech review those submissions and select some semifinalists. This year, we had 26 semifinalists that we picked that we thought represented the best of the applicant pool. We then shared those on our website and invited the public to watch those videos about each of those instruments and vote on their favorites. And then we invited 10 finalists to come to Georgia Tech for two days. And those finalists were selected through a combination of the semifinalists who received the most votes on our website and the ones that our faculty panel uh, really believed in the most and really wanted to bring here. And so those 10 finalists are coming for for two days to campus and they will give presentations to a panel of judges. Uh, And these are expert judges from the field. We have a curator from the Museum of Modern Art this year and the founder of a music technology software company and a YouTube personality and audio producer and engineer. So all those- It's a wonderful panel that represents kind of these these different perspectives uh, from artistic viewpoints and industry viewpoints. And they uh, watch presentations, uh, 20 minutes each from each of our finalists. And they're they're very interactive presentations. They they 
talk about what they did. They demonstrate the instruments. Our judges ask a lot of questions. They'll usually come up and try out the instruments themselves to really understand how they work firsthand. Oh, cool. And then our judges are asked to, to choose a first, second, and third place winner based on what they've seen. Uh, and this is a very difficult process for them usually because musical instruments are so varied. It's sometimes like comparing apples and oranges, but we ask them to think about the musicality of the instruments, their design features, and the engineering uh, skills that went into creating them and making their decisions. Is their decision happening during the live event concert on the 12th? No, it happens shortly before the concert. So these presentations that the finalists make, they happen the day before the concert uh, in, a, in a private session with the judges. And we really want the concert not to feel, it is a competition, but we really want it to feel like a celebration. Mm -hmm. And so during the concert, we match up each of our finalists with a local musician here in Atlanta. Uh, some of them are faculty from our School of Music here at Georgia Tech or incredible uh, students who uh, are, are students here at Georgia Tech. Some of them are, are other local musicians. And so we pair them up during the day uh, on Saturday, the day of the concert. For the first time you pair them up that day? Yes, they meet each other for the first time that day. Wow. And they spend the day together and they develop a short performance that they then present on the concert that evening. Uh, so sometimes that might be that our musician here in Atlanta might be performing on this new instrument. Sometimes they may be doing a duet together. So the creator may be playing their own instrument along with you know, a musician here. Whatever they feel is really going to help showcase what that instrument can do. And so in that evening performance, we're really showcasing these instruments in a way that's really exciting and engaging, telling the stories of what makes them so special and unique. And then at the end of the evening, uh, the judges do present their awards, but we also give the live audience a chance to vote on their favorite instrument that they Excellent. saw that evening. And we give out an additional award that's based on that popular vote. That's fantastic. Well, I would love for our audience to get to hear some of these amazing instruments. If you don't mind, I'm just going to go through a few of them with you. But like you said, we are talking about apples and oranges at best. Some of these instruments are completely digital. Some are based in instrumentation that is very common and classical. And an example of that would be the glossotar. I believe it's the glissotar. Glissotar. Thank you. As in glissando. Excellent. This was developed by a gentleman who's a 30-year veteran of playing the saxophone, and he wanted to create something that would make the fingering process easier. Can you share what he's done here? Yeah, it's this instrument is so interesting to me because so many of the instruments in our competition involve you know, circuits and sensors and embedded computers and all that kind of stuff. And this is an entirely acoustic instrument, but equally inventive and creative in the approach. So what he has done, it looks like a soprano saxophone or a clarinet or something like that. It uses a standard mouthpiece, but instead of the keys uh, or, you know, the holes on the clarinet where we, we might expect them, what you see is a continuous ribbon and you can slide your fingers across that ribbon so that you can play continuous pitch the same way you might on a violin or a cello or, or something like that. And so not only does this enable you to play kind of these microtones, kind of the, the, the spaces between the keys on the piano that right. we might traditionally think of as, as, as a scale, but it allows you to glissando, to do these slides in pitch kind of effortlessly um, in a way that, you know, you can do it a little bit on a traditional saxophone, but nothing like what's possible here. And so you can get these kinds of sounds and effects and things that come out of this instrument that are unlike anything else. I myself played saxophone for many years. That was my main instrument when awesome. I was growing up. And so, you know, the things that come out of this glissatar are truly incredible and have been my mind because it sounds like a saxophone and yet it cannot possibly be a saxophone that I'm hearing. It's absolutely fantastic. And then far on the other end of the scale, we have the globe. Can you describe that? Yeah, so the globe 
It looks like, to me, it looks like a bingo machine, like one of those balls that spins oh, around that totally. you put bingo balls into. Yes. Um, there, you don't put anything inside of this one, but it's on a stand and it's a small sphere and you can spin it around. It also has lights throughout it that give you feedback on what's going on and sense all kinds of sensors on the surface and all around it. So you play the instrument by spinning it, by touching it, by moving it around and all these different things. And that sends signals into a computer, uh, which then interprets that to make uh, all of the music that you hear in the performance. I love it. And to me, a great combination of experimental and classical is the air glow. It's basically an air guitar that pretty much does it for you. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think it's actually, it's part air guitar and it's part lightsaber, really. Oh, for, oh my gosh, so, that's exactly how I described it to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so it, you know, it looks like a, a little bit like a guitar in terms of its shape and, and, and style, but it's made of what looked like fluorescent light bulbs. They're not actually fluorescent light bulbs. They're these uh, LED light bars and it has all kinds of sensors on the surfaces and embedded within it, but it, it's designed to support different modes of, of playing with it. You can kind of pretend to play it like an air guitar, except obviously there's an actual instrument there. And so as you're doing gestures that would be common in kind of air guitar performance, they actually have real effects on music that you're hearing. And so, you know, you don't have to kind of, you know, make sound effects yourself with your voice as you're, you're, you're strumming the air guitar. You're getting actual electroacoustic sound coming out as you're doing these gestures. also play it in more of a kind of a lightsaber mode where you're really waving it around, um, hopefully not getting into a fight with somebody else, but, <laughs> uh, but really using those kinds of motions and the sensors will create sounds based on that as well. One of the other things that's really interesting to me about the Airglow is that this was designed specifically with STEM education in mind. So there are lesson plans and activities for classrooms that come oh, along with it wonderful. to really teach students about music and about STEM together. That's wonderful. Well, while we're still on the idea of guitars, is it pronounced like Carrie? I believe it's Lee Cherry. Lee Cherry. Thank you. Tell us about Lee Cherry. So uh, this looks like a guitar. It plays with a traditional kind of guitar technique, but it looks unlike any guitar you've seen before. It, it has no body to it. It's really just the fretboard and, and controls. And it has a really innovative series of pickups on it that convert anything that you play into a special format called MIDI that can then send those signals to a computer where you can really turn it into any kind of sound you want. So what really impressed us about this, because there's, there's obviously been a lot of innovation, different types of guitars over the year, but the design features of this instrument really make it an art object kind of unto itself, uh, just to look at. It's beautiful. Can you describe it a little bit? It almost looks like to me, like a human spine in a way mm, that you, mm -hmm. you have all these, you know, the frets, the individual frets on the fretboard kind of come out as these bars that are kind of across the, the main frame of the guitar but it's all made of metal. It has a very kind of modern look to it. You know, it just, it has this very clean, very industrial look that is the opposite of what I usually think about when I think of any guitar, whether it's acoustic or electric. Mm -hmm. Those curves and all those things have really been replaced by, by these sharp angles in this narrow uh, form. Oh, it's so cool. And I encourage everyone to go to your website and check out these videos. They're absolutely amazing. All of the music that you're hearing in the background right now comes from these videos and you can watch and listen to the designers talk about their instruments. One of the most unique things that I felt like I saw was something I believe called the T-Box. It's a speaking and singing theremin. 
Yeah. So the TVOX, to really understand that, we have to go back a little bit in history. So one of the earliest electronic musical instruments that was ever created was the theremin. It's about a hundred years old. It was invented by a Russian inventor named Leon Theremin. And it is a, an unusual instrument in that you do not actually touch it to play it. It has two antennae sticking out of it. And the proximity of your hands, to the two antennae influence, one of them influences the pitch of the sound and the other influences the volume. And so you can still buy and perform with theremins today. And there is a performance practice that has evolved around them. There's been some great theremin virtuosi who have uh, performed both classical repertoire and also commissioned new music for the theremin. And it really has had an unusually long and successful life for such an unusual instrument. And so TVOX draws its inspiration from the theremin and uses this exact same kind of control with these two antennae to control pitch and volume. But instead of creating what sounds like an electronic waveform, which is what the original theremin did, it is actually able to sing and to speak as you're moving your hands through the air. And so the performer pre-records in a kind of a special kind of monotone format, the lyrics to a song, them, them saying the lyrics to a song, and then they're able to cue kind of moving through this recording and changing the pitch and changing the expression and intonation of it through their hand movements. My funny Valentine, sweet comic Valentine, you make me smile with my heart. And so it's quite an amazing thing when you see like a jazz standard performed with a you know a pianist playing a regular piano, and then you see a performer playing the T-Vox. It really sounds like a, a jazz singer, but it's really just them moving their hands. No one is singing live at all. That's amazing. And it's multilingual, right? Yes. Just amazing. There's one more that I want to touch on today. It's the cicada. Can you explain that? So the cicada is really interesting. When we were talking about last year's winner of the competition, we were talking about this kind of intersection between acoustic and electronic sound. And this has been a really popular theme in the competition. And I think in, in the music technology industry more generally in the last several years, where there are ways that we can combine acoustic sound and electronic sound to really create sounds that have this very human-like physical quality to them, but we have all the flexibility of digital controls and capabilities. Um, actually, the TVOX that we just talked about is a kind of example of that because you sure. have a, a human that's pre-recording these sounds and then activating them through this digital interface. The cicada takes us to a more kind of fundamental level where you have this physical oscillator, this mechanical thing that's vibrating back and forth. that's <laughs> actually helping to create the sound that we're hearing. So it's part of a larger uh, kind of electronic music performance setup with all the different components you would normally have. But this physical thing is actually taking uh, signals in and out and changing them and transforming them based on the way that it's vibrating back and forth. And so you get these very kind of unusual and otherworldly sounds, but that are, are rooted in this physical phenomenon. So that this, this combination is really is really powerful. And this one is already out on the market, right? It was commercialized last year? Yes, that's correct. I think it's interesting to look at our competitors in the competition, that many of them do seek to commercialize their products. And many of our past winners have had successful launches of commercial products. But not all of them have that goal in mind. Some of them are really musicians that are just searching for a new instrument because they have particular creative goals that can't be uh, addressed by any instrument that exists in the world right now. And so they're inventing a new one out of necessity to be able to make the music that they want to make in the way that they want to make it. And others have other interests, like the air glow that we were talking about before. Um, there's really a focus on an educational 
purpose. And so, you know, the goal there is not that there's going to be an airglow on every concert stage in the world, but that there's going to be an airglow in every classroom in the world, you know, sometime in the future. And so we really celebrate and recognize that the many different reasons that people are motivated to create new musical instruments. And we're fortunate to live in a time where the tools to make this, the software and the hardware and the skills that you need to make new instruments are readily accessible to just about anyone that, you know, the kids can easily design their new instruments using readily available tools that are available in most school maker labs. And that artists who may not have a strong technical background can also start making things themselves with the things that are out there. You know, even if they don't aspire to make something that is, is ultimately a commercial product, the process of making a musical instrument is an incredible form of creative expression and something that we want to celebrate in its own right. Absolutely. If anyone needed an example of why science is so cool, I think this about covers it. So on Saturday, March 12th, listeners will get to see all of these instruments in action paired with Atlanta musicians, right? Correct. That's at 7 p.m. at the First Center for the Arts on the Georgia Tech campus. That is just wonderful. Before I let you go, since there is so much going on with the Atlanta Science Festival, Honestly, it's impossible for someone to see everything. So if I just asked Jason, what would you say your number one thing is that you're most excited about? My number one thing that I'm most excited about on the Atlanta Science Festival, I have read about a slug walk uh, to discover the slugs that are in our urban ecosystem here in Atlanta. And slugs hold a special place in my family's heart. So I am very curious and I have to say I am a little bit scared, uh, but I'm very intrigued about the slugs and learning more about them. Do you mind sharing your family story that has to do with slugs? Um, that is a good question. I'm worried I might get in trouble with my children if I divulge <laughs> any further details, but let's just say we have a love-hate relationship with slugs. <laughs> Fair enough. Jason Freeman, thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this amazing background information on all of these amazing instruments. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I hope everyone is able to join us at the concert and see them in person. Professor and chair of Georgia Tech School of Music, Jason Freeman, the Guthman Musical Instrument Competition concert is this Saturday, March 12th, at the First Center for the Arts on the campus of Georgia Tech. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the next installment in our series, Speaking of Music, Today, featuring violinist Helen Kim. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. My name is Helen Kim, and I am a classical violinist. People often ask me, what motivates me, and I'm most proud to be a teacher. I am professor of violin at Kennesaw State University. I've been there since 2006, and I am inspired daily by my students. Music is so unusual because it's like fingerprints. No one has the same interpretation or take on a piece of music, and I am always learning from their perspectives and their eyes. Their fresh perspectives keep every note of music alive for me, so I'm never tired, and um, that interaction always motivates me. Secondly, I love to perform for live audiences. As we're getting through this pandemic, I am, every time I get to perform now, I am grateful for that opportunity 
to interact with the audience as it is a two-way streak and I realized how much I need that in my life. My journey with the violin begins as a little girl growing up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I was watching Sesame Street on TV and the most magical sound came out of my parents' television. It was Ixat Perlman playing the violin, probably next to the Cookie Monster. I was about four years old at the time. I was alone when I was watching it and I soon began crayoning a lot of drawings of what appeared to be a man with curly hair sitting in a chair holding an object. So my parents found multiple of these crayon drawings around the house and were rather concerned and asked me, Helen, what is this? They were really relieved to find out when they deduced that it was the violinist Ixal Perlman and I asked them if I could learn to do that. To this day, I'm so grateful to my wonderful parents because at the time they had just immigrated from Korea and were building a new life and supporting those that they had left in Korea. So it was a luxury, but they found a way to get me lessons and music became a really important part of my life. I progressed rapidly and won lots of competitions and got to perform a lot as a child. So much to the fact that one of my recordings got sent to New York City to Ixal Perlman's teacher, Dorothy DeLay. So this has come full circle. So when I was 13 years old, my phone rang in my kitchen and my parents answered it. And it was Dorothy DeLay, the famed violin teacher, inviting me to come study with her at Juilliard. They were shocked because this was not part of their plan at all, but uh, thought about it. And a year later, my mother and I packed up and we moved to New York to study with her. Atlanta in 1999, first to work for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. When I moved here, I was struck with how the city has everything. It's diverse in its makeup, and there's a lot of space here for everyone, and it has really everything that you could look for culturally and even just geographically. It's wonderful to go up to the mountains and go for a hike. It reminds me of my childhood growing up in Calgary, Alberta, near the mountains. And you can also, you know, not too far, you can go to the ocean. So it really has everything that I was always looking for. And I am so proud to call Atlanta home. One of the selections I'm performing that I'd like to share with you is the fourth movement of the Sonata for Violin and Piano by César Franck. It was written in the late 1800s. For me personally, I heard this as a young child and it was a piece that inspired me to practice and improve and I couldn't wait for the day that I would be able to play this. My older brother is a wonderful pianist, so it's a piece that's very special to me because we often play together. And it's a canon in form, so if you sang Farajaka or Row, Row, Row Your Boat, you have understood this musical form called a canon. But I love it because it combines the two instruments into just a, another sound world. So again, this is one of my favorite pieces to play.
Perhaps my most favorite place to perform or hear live music is at Oakhurst Porch Fest. I actually am a resident of Oakhurst, a neighborhood in Decatur. And once a year, on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, all the porches in my neighborhood host live music of all kinds. You can hear country, bluegrass, rap, R&B, you name it, and classical. So my husband, who's a clarinetist with the symphony orchestra and our friends from the Atlanta Symphony, and I play chamber music on our porch. And it's just a really fun hour to play for whoever happens to walk by. Then when we're done, we can walk around the neighborhood and be inspired by all these other wonderful live musicians. Violinist Helen Kim and our series, Speaking of Music. More information about Kim and her music can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll hear about the Marietta Cobb Museum of Arts exhibition, Something to Declare. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.